Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 13 in our Bible study. So if you could open in your Bibles or your mobile apps or get the attention of one of the ushers as they are moving up and down the aisles to hand out Bibles right now, we want you to follow along with us uh, in our study. We're just going to do chapter 13 tonight because it's good. And let's pray and ask God to please um, speak through his, his word. So Father, we just come to you again and and Lord, we know that you're here, and Lord, we, we've already sought you, but Lord, as we turn our attention now to your eternal word, Lord, you have told us the power that is contained in this Bible, this living Bible. And so we want to ask you, Lord, now, as we read these things, as we look at our lives and our world through the lens of what you have said is timeless, we ask you, Father, that you would anoint our hearts, anoint your word, inspire us, Lord, to uh, be molded and shaped by who you are and what you say, and that you would help us. We know that your intention towards us is for good, Lord. So would you please teach us tonight uh, through this example that's been carefully preserved, and would we hear you, Lord? So if there be any fog, if there be anything that would interrupt our clarity or our hearing, we ask, Lord, that you would remove every distraction and that your word would have free course tonight, that Jesus, you would be the teacher here, your spirit in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. If you want to be noticed, or if you want to be applauded, if you want to be recognized, if you want to be affirmed, then all you have to do is do something really well once in a while, okay? So make a change in your life that shows a sudden, noticeable improvement. Just do that every now and again, and you will get all kinds of recognition. But if you want to be overlooked, taken for granted, marginalized, and passed over, then do something really well all the time consistently, routinely, and faithfully, okay? That's how you get unnoticed. Just be consistent. That's all you've got to do. If you're a jerk and all of a sudden you're nicer, you will be noticed and applauded for that. But if you are consistently nice, people will ignore you. If you are a slob and you suddenly clean your car or do something cleanly, People will notice. You will get attention for that. But if you are consistently ordered and organized, you will be overlooked, passed by, and taken for granted. If you are out of shape and you suddenly slim down, people will applaud you for your efforts and your results. But if you are consistently disciplined and keep yourself in shape, no one will notice or ever say anything. And if they do, it will just be, they have good genes. You know, but you will never be, never be applauded for consistency. You'll never be applauded for constantly doing load after load of laundry, making meal after meal, making another bagged lunch, holding down a job consistently year after year after year, keeping cars running, keeping a house going. You will never be applauded for all of that. But here's the truth about life is that greatness in life is all about the long game. It's all about faithful, steady continuance, year after year after year, doing consistently the things that you know are right, that you've been called to do, whether you're recognized or applauded or not, and keeping going in it. It's all about the long game. Hall of Famers, true professionals, truly great people understand that those things are not about individual accomplishments, but rather it's about showing up every day and continuing. About seven years ago, uh, there was a moment in my Christian life, it was a big deal for me. There was a pastor in the United States of America that I, I highly regarded and highly looked up to. 
and, and, and often would, would keep tabs on the ministry because I was so impressed with how fruitful it was. And it was really fruitful, the, 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 the depth and the reach of the roots and the branches of this ministry and, and of this pastor who founded the ministry and saw it straight through. Well, seven years ago, it was found out that he was caught up in a scandal of sexual sin that was far-reaching. It wasn't just a one-time thing. It was something that had happened over time, and it was a great big fall. And for me, it was a great big deal. Now, I know we hear about these things often, but for me, it really affected me. And I remember hearing that news and it it really was shattering. It was a big deal, you know, and I'm kind of thick skinned about things like that. I kind of can just brush it off and move. But I remember being speechless for like a half an hour. I just sat on the edge of my bed after hearing that and just sat there and just thinking about it. And and I remember the first words out of my mouth when I finally did speak, there was no one in the room, but I, I just remember saying, is this a game? Is this a joke? Like, what are we doing? And and then I went silent again and just was thinking for a while. I remember the Lord spoke to me and it it was so clear that if I was on Twitter, I would have tweeted it because it, it just, this phrase came to me and it was the Lord. He said to me, he said that fruit that remains is better than fruit that exists. And I know that may sound simple or obvious, you know, but Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 16, he said that I have ordained you or appointed you that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should, say it with me, remain. remain. That's right. That whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So Jesus is not so much interested in the fruit that exists right now, though that's important, though it is good. What matters is the fruit that remains. Do you have a long game? Are you in it for the long haul? Because really what we are right now only matters now, but it's the long game that affects all of life. That's how life is measured. Now, having said that, we come to our text. It's 1 Samuel chapter 13, And notice with me in verse 1 how the stage is set for us. It says this. It says that Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel. Okay? So in other words, Saul has made it through an entire year of holding the position of the king of Israel. And really for Saul, it's kind of been a good year. He has shown some humility. He's had a notable victory. He's gained the confidence of the nation. And though there are some chinks in the armor that we have seen and that, are, that were apparent, it was a pretty good year. But the implication and what will fall out after this phrase is that the second year isn't as good as the first year was. And though he had fruit that exists... Saul will not have fruit that remains. Though Saul has done some things that are notable, that are praiseworthy, he is not going to be consistent or faithful in those things, and we're going to see the outcome of it. That was 2019, but now it's 2020, and things are completely different, and it's a different world in Saul's second year than it was in his first year. In the first year, there was 330,000 people in the army. In the first year, there was money in the bank. In the first year, kids were in school and there was routine. In the first year, Amazon Prime was delivering in two days and you could get things done. In the first year, there was routine and there was rhythm. And we do good when there's routine and when there's rhythm. But what about in the second year? What about when things aren't the way they were before? What happens when there's an unexpected change? What happens when my rhythm is broken up? Then am I still consistent? Am I still faithful? Am I still fruitful? Or do things suddenly change? I ask you the question tonight, how are you doing now? And how will you be doing then? And what we see of Saul now as we move into chapter 13 is the unraveling. He did good for a while, but he didn't hold on. Notice what happens in the second year, verse 2. It says that Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in Mount Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan, Jonathan was Saul's son, in Gibeah 
of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. And Jonathan, the younger, the son, who only has a thousand and Saul with his 2000, Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines. That means he took on a battalion of the enemy's army and he defeated them. It says that he defeated the garrison of the Philistines, which was in Geba and the Philistines heard of it. So the rest of the nation hears that Israel has invaded, that they have obtained a victory. Now watch this. It says, and Saul blew the trumpet. Jonathan won the battle, but Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land saying, Saul said, let the Hebrews hear. He wanted an audience. And all Israel heard say, watch this, that Saul had smitten a garrison of the Philistines and that Israel also was had an abomination with the Philistines and the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. So all of the army, all the people that have been sent home at this point now are called back because Saul blows the trumpet and it's heard say that Saul has smitten an uh, an invading army of the Philistines. Now we are going to begin to see this unraveling and what I want you to understand as we move through this chapter and we see where Saul was so messed up is that Saul had eye problems. Okay, and that's the title of the message tonight. The title of the message tonight is Eye Problems, and and it really is an instructive chapter for us of how to avoid self-sabotage, all right? Because eye problems will create self-sabotage, and Saul has five of them. Now, I am not talking about a problem with Saul's vision, Right? This is not an EYE problem that Saul has. Saul can see just fine, at least for now. Later on, he will have problems with his eyes. You say, is that David? I don't know. I can't see. You know, but right now, it's not a problem with his vision. He can see just fine. And it's really not even, it's not even the other eye problem. You know the eye problem that some people have where they use the word I 12 times in every paragraph they say? You know, I wonder what I, me, and I, my, and I, then I, and we, and me. You know, the I, the, some people have that kind of eye problem, and Saul has that problem, but that's not the eye problems that Saul has that we see in this chapter here tonight. They're, they're different, okay? They're different kind of eye problems. They're kind of eye problems that every one of us can have that will cause us to fall in the same way that Saul fell, that will cause us to not endure in the ways that we could endure and should endure What are they? Number one, and we see it right here, is Saul's first eye problem was, what is it? Sorry, brain brain bubble, whatever that is. Oh, sorry, Uh, yeah, insecurity. Is that Saul was insecure. That was his, his first problem. Did you catch that in the text? That Jonathan, with only a thousand, he smote the garrison, but Saul blew the trumpet. Jonathan, the younger the less experienced, the one who was not at this time anointed to be king, he did something that was more valiant than the man who was the king. He stepped into a place where the king was supposed to step in and obtained a victory that maybe could have been the king's, but it wasn't the king. But Saul could not extend credit or congratulations or honor to his son, Jonathan. He had to have it for himself. Jonathan did the work. Saul took the credit. Mom raised him right and instilled good values into him, but dad took the trophy and the credit for what was done in the kid's life, though he wasn't there. The vice president of the company pitched the idea, but it was the president of the company who filed the patent and got the credit. It was the running back who plowed the ball 80 yards down the field, but the quarterback snook it for the last yard and moved it into the end zone and got the credit for the touchdown. You get the idea? Is that the person who wasn't in charge did something valiant, and the person who was in charge wasn't secure enough in their position to extend credit or honor to the person that did the work, okay? Now, here's what Saul's problem was, his insecurity, is that he believed the myth 
that validation of his position meant that he needed to be the best, he needed to be the strongest, the smartest, and the most talented. And even though Jonathan did something that's outstanding, Saul feels like he needs to get the credit for it in order to keep the nation rallied around himself. Okay, now listen to me carefully. Because Saul made not only a huge mistake, but he missed an incredible opportunity. And here's why. Because every single human being that will ever walk on the planet earth has this in common, is that we, are, we desire to be known, we desire to be valued, we desire to be productive, that is to do something useful, and we desire to be honored for it. That is universal. Every single human being has and shares those things in common. Now, Jonathan just did something that's notable. He did something that's valuable. He did something that's productive for the cause of the kingdom and for the cause of the nation. And he did something that's honorable and he deserves to be honored in it. Now, follow me here, okay? Saul, the king, who did not follow through with all of that, Saul built Jonathan, okay? At least in part, he was his father. He was serving with him together. Saul was his leader. Saul was his inspiration. Saul was his teacher. Saul built Jonathan, okay? And, and essentially, rather than pushing him behind, he should have thrust him forward because the message that would be sent to the rest of the people that were following with Saul is that if Saul built Jonathan and Jonathan is doing valiantly and productive things and, and being honored for it, then if I follow Saul, I may also be built, I may also be valued, I may also be productive, and I may also be honored, recognized, rewarded for what I've done. And had Saul done that, had Saul said, look what Jonathan did, look what Jonathan did, the result of that is that Saul would have built an army. Listen to me carefully. A good leader's fruit grows on other people's trees. All right? That's just the way it is. And here's the secret. If you want to build an army, then what you do is you invest in other people. You make it your aim to add value, to add productivity, and add honor to others. And it's so important. Can't say it enough. For those of us that are dads, for us to look at our kids and not feel like we need to, to be the king of our domain and, and that we need to be smarter than them and correcting them constantly and constantly the smartest and the strongest in the room, but rather to look at our kids and to express to them, declare to them the value that they bring to our family uniquely. That you bring something to our family that I can't bring. You're strong in an area where I'm weak. And God put you in our family and he's building our family to be stronger by putting you here. I don't need to tell moms that because you moms do that. That's what you do. You're constantly declaring and talking and expressing it to your kids. If you are the captain of a team, you don't need to be the ball carrier every time. Give honor, thrust others forward. If you're a boss, you don't need to be the smartest person in the room. Give the honor, give the credit to the people that deserve it. Tell them, but Saul wanted an audience when he needed an army, and the result is that he got neither, okay? Because watch what happens. It doesn't work the way Saul hoped that it would. Watch verse 5. It says that the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and pitched in Michmash eastward from beth Aven. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, meaning they were stuck, for the people were distressed then the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal. And watch this. And all the people followed him trembling. 
So they are now in fear. So here's the scene. Here's what happens. Is that Jonathan stands up in class with a pie in his hand. And he throws it at the bully in the back of the room. And he hits him square in the face. Now Saul says, look what I did. I threw a pie at the bully. And everybody cheers at first. But then the bully says, oh yeah? I'll meet you at three o'clock out in the playground. You bring your friends, I'll bring mine. And so the Philistines show up, and they show up in mass. They have 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and foot soldiers, uncountable. That's what it means when it says it's the sand of the seashore. And Saul, with his 3,000 guys, they come in, they look out the window, and they see this massive army of Philistines, all with brass knuckles, big guys, leather coats. And they realize we're in trouble. And, and they say, what are you going to do now, Saul? And Saul goes, oh, you guys are coming, right? And they're like, nope. <laughs> and they go running. They, they say, we're not following you out into this thing. You are, and here's Saul's second eye problem. You ready for it? Is that Saul is incompetent. That's number two. Is that Saul is incompetent. He has people following him, but those people are in a state. And it's all there in verse six, all four. It says that they were stuck it says they were stressed. It says they were stagnant. And then actually in verse 7, it says that they were scared. That was the, the, the result of the people. That is Saul's leadership style and what it has produced in the people that are following him. And here's why. Here's why Saul is incompetent. is because he leads by intimidation and not by inspiration. Remember in the last chapter when Saul needed an army? Do you remember what he did? He took two bulls and he chopped them up in pieces and he sent the pieces of bloodied bull to households and areas throughout Israel. And he said, if you don't come and fight with me in this battle, then this is what I'm going to do to everything you own. Now, what would you do if you got that package? You'd be like, I better go fight. I don't want to lose everything I've got. But here's the problem is that Saul already played the oxen card. All right, he can't just keep killing cows every time he needs another battle. And no one has opened an Amazon package in Israel ever since that day because they don't know what it's going to be. They're like, let's just hold off on that. We did this before. I don't know if we want to go that way. And now Saul finds him in a situation where the need that is can't be met by the means that were. And he knows that he's in trouble and he cannot inspire confidence in the people through his intimidation style of leadership, and he finds himself not knowing what to do. The emperor's clothes are exposed. He, he's, he's in a strait. Now, he is incompetent. Now, listen to me. True incompetence, true incompetence has one defining mark, all right? If, if someone is truly incompetent, you can tell by just one simple thing, and here's what it is, is the failure or refusal to ever admit that you don't know what to do, all right? It is not incompetence to not know what to do. We all have situations and times that we come into in our lives where we don't know what to do. That does not make you incompetent. It makes you unable to address a particular situation. You can still be a very competent person and yet not know what to do in a given situation. But if you will not admit that you don't know what to do and therefore find out what to do from those that know what you should do, then you are incompetent. That is why everyone in Washington, D.C. is incompetent, okay? Because, because, because they refuse to find out what to do. They're just going to try something. All right, so the debt to GDP ratio is 100%. And I don't even know what that means because I tried today to figure out what that means. I texted with my brother who is a genius financially and in every other arena of life for an hour trying to find out what that meant and I still don't quite understand it. I just know that it's really, really bad, okay? But what do those in Washington say? Oh, we know how to fix this. Let's borrow more money. Duh. You know, we're already spending twice as much as we earn. Let's just borrow more. That's how we solve this thing. That's called incompetent. They don't know what to do. 
right? That's the issue. That's what's at stake in this thing. Unemployment numbers are through the roof. It's a problem. There's not enough stuff for people to do. So let's give them money. Let's just give them money. Nobody's got to do anything. We'll just give money away and we'll borrow it and we'll add. This is what we do. People are sick. There's a pandemic. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to solve this problem. So here's what we'll do. Let's get mercury and dead fetus parts and we'll stick it in people and hope they get better or don't get sick. And if they do, we'll call it an unexplained illness. All right. That's what we're It could be. It doesn't matter. That's the point. Okay, it doesn't. What if the president of the United States, and you'll know this is honorable when you hear what I'm going to say. What if they said to the American people, listen, we are facing things right now. Debt problems, employment problems, health problems, mental problems, drug problems, moral problems. We are facing problems right now. And I don't know what to do. I don't have a solution to those problems. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to surround myself with people that are smarter than I am in areas where I don't understand everything. And I'm going to surround myself with people and we are going to ask God who knows all things and can do all things to help and guide us through this because on our very currency, we have declared as a nation that we trust in him. And so we're going to gather together and we're going to ask God to help us. Because historically, there are times that a nation comes into a situation where in order to be set free, the Red Sea has to be parted and some idiots need to be drowned. And that that is beyond our ability and capability to figure out in ourselves. I don't know what to do. I wonder if maybe someone would say, you know what, that guy makes sense. (laughs) they don't know what to do. Sometimes you just don't know what to do. Now, why do I bring that up here? I didn't do it to wax political or talk about our nation. Here's why. It's because Saul was told when he first became the king that he was going to come into a situation in Gilgal where he didn't know what to do. And that what he was to do was to wait for Samuel the prophet to come and tell him what he should do. That was the instruction that was given to him way back at the beginning. So it's okay that Saul doesn't know what to do, but what he's supposed to do now is he's supposed to wait for someone who does know what to do to tell him what to do. But here's Saul's third eye problem. You ready for it? Is that he's impatient. Watch this in verse 8. It says that he tarried until seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. In other words, he knows that he's supposed to wait for Samuel to come. But Samuel came not to Gilgal and the people were scattered from him. So day by day goes by. Samuel hasn't come yet. Day four, day five, day six, we're into day seven, and the people are starting to say, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. This guy can't lead an army. He's incompetent as a king. And so Saul said, bring hither a burnt offering to me and peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. Now, this is a terrible sin because it was not permitted for someone who was not a Levite or a priest or sanctioned to do this, to offer this sacrifice. Samuel could, Saul could not. But Saul was done waiting after six and a half days. He assumed Samuel was not going to show up. He felt the pull of desperation. And so in his impatience, he just tries something. He does something And it says that it came to pass as soon as he had... Don't you love that? (laughs) Don't you love God's timing? As soon as he took out another home equity loan. As soon as he took matters into his own hands. As soon as he just tried something because he didn't know what else to do. As soon God shows up through the person of Samuel. As soon as he made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came... And Saul went out to meet him. So he doesn't let him, like he tries to like, uh, put that fire out. <laughs> I'm going to just go talk to Samuel. <laughs> but he goes out to meet Saul or Samuel that he might salute him in this whole thing. Now, 
Now, impatience, okay, we all, we all know what that is. We all feel, anybody in here have the gift of patience? Okay, there's very few people that actually have the gift of patience. We all understand impatience, but here's what impatience did. It, le- it led to the fourth eye problem that Saul has, and that is intrusion. Number four is intrusion. And that is that Saul intruded into an area that he had no business being in. He was not to offer this offering. That was Samuel's role. And Saul intruded into it. He overstepped the boundaries that God had established for him as the king in his life. And he did something that he was not supposed to do. Now, listen, this is what many Christians do when they become impatient, waiting for God to give them instruction. They intrude into areas they have no business being or into things that they have no ability to be in. A relocation, I'm frustrated, I don't want to be here anymore. God didn't tell me to leave, but I'm leaving. The taxes are too high. A change of jobs, I don't like my situation, I don't like my boss, God hasn't come through, I'm stuck, I don't know what to do in my life, and so I'm just going to do something, and you intrude into something, not led of the Spirit, not ordained of God, you just move, you intrude, you go into something where you don't have any business being. I want to share a verse with you, you guys know the verse, if you've been around at all. It's Jeremiah 29 11. It's a famous verse. If you don't know the verse, you've seen it on a plaque in someone's house. God says this, King James Version. He says, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil, listen, to bring you to an expected end. The other versions translate it, God says, I know the plans that I have towards you, to bring you a future and a hope. I like the first half of the other translations and the second half of the King James. God says, I know the plans that I have for you, to bring you to an expected end, meaning God has a plan that has a destination. There's a beginning, a journey, and an ending. And God is the one that is unfolding and orchestrating and leading your life to where he wants you to be, not just in this world, but in generations to come for your descendants and an eternity to follow in heaven. God has a plan. Okay? Now listen, I want to ask you a question, and I want you to be completely honest. All right? With you, don't shout out, but just this is a question for you. Everyone gets this question. All right? Here's your option. You get two choices, and you have to choose one. You cannot opt out, one or the other. God comes to you personally, tangibly. You know it's God. And he says this, I will give you seven days. And for seven days, I want you to get a notebook. I want you to get a book. And I want you to write out everything you want to happen in your life for the next 50 years. Every, you, it, you can fill 10 books if you can do it in seven days. Your marriage, your family, your finances, where you live, the type of house you live. You can even, even your personality, the things internally that only God can, can adjust. You write down everything you want for your life for the next 50 years. By the time I'm this age, I want this. I want to be here. By the time I'm, you write it all out, okay? In seven days, come back to me. And so you say, oh my goodness, talk about a genie in a bottle. Wow. You know, like I could literally just write my life right now. I could write the biography of my own life. This is amazing. So you do it. You write it down seven days. You just fill it out. You go through and you think everything through. You talk to your people around you and you look at Google and, you know, places to live in islands. And you just, yes, this is amazing. And you write it all out and it's, you finally finish it. The, the end of seven days, you're there and you're done. And God comes back to you and he's got something in his hand and it's a sealed book. And God says, you got that? And you're like, yeah, I got it. I got it. I'm ready. This is, this is amazing. God says, okay. He goes, just one thing before I take that. He says, if you, if you, if you give that to me, it's yours. I'm, I'm going to do it. It's, it's 100% guaranteed. It's yours. But before you give that to me, God says, I have right here, I have my plans for your next 50 years. I wrote one too. And I thought of everything I could think of. And I did it from the viewpoint and the vantage point of everything that I know for your life. And what will be good for you and for 
your descendants and the generations to come and for eternity. I, this is my plan. Which one do you want? Because you can't have both. You can have yours. I'll do it. I'll, you can hand it in right now and, and you can have it. Or you can say, mm, I'll take yours, but you don't get to see it. You're just going to have to leave it with me and live it out. Which one would you take? Honestly, which one do you want? Do you want your plan for your life and for God to bless it and honor it and do it? Or do you trust him enough to realize that he sees more than you see and he knows what you don't and he can do what you can't and that he is looking at things from a much broader perspective than you are and he's looking at how your life path and actions affect everyone else around you, including the people that you haven't met yet, how his plan affects who you're becoming in 20 years, not just who you are right now, and that his plan is taking all of that into account, and he says thoughts of good. Thoughts for peace and not for evil to give you a future and a hope and to bring you to an expected end. God says, I know what you're going to value 20 years from now. I know what your personality is going to be looking like after you're not grinding it out anymore in the early stages of life. I know what your life is going to look like when your kids are grown and stable and functioning. I know all of the things that concern you. You don't know any of that yet. Which one do you want? Here's what I submit to you tonight, is that if you were to take your plan over God's plan, within one year, you would regret it and give your right arm to trade it back because you just can't see what he sees. And it requires patience and steadfastness to trust him and to believe that he is doing something, whether you feel it or not, see it or not, know it or not. And to hang in there. When you get impatient, you begin to intrude into things you have no business being in. And that causes big problems. You know what the biggest problem with intrusion is? Is that Saul never finds out what God would have done. Because Samuel doesn't tell him. You're going to see it in a moment. Samuel's going to leave without telling Saul what to do. He's going to leave Saul to figure it out for himself because Saul didn't want to wait. He wanted to do it his way, okay? Here comes the, the worst eye problem of all. This is Saul's fifth eye problem. It's in verse 11. Samuel smells the smoke of the burnt offering. He sees the men trying to stamp out the coals in the background behind him and try to hide the evidence of what Saul just did. The kids are cleaning up the party while the parents are standing at the front door, pulling the car into the garage, you know. And Samuel said, what have you done? Don't you love hearing that from people that are over you? What have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you came not within the days that were appointed and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash, therefore said I, the Philistines will come down upon me and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself therefore and offered a burnt offering. I didn't want to do it, but you made me do it. That's right. The devil made me do it. You know, it's not my fault. Now listen, listen, he blames Samuel. He justifies it because of the situation and then he excuses himself saying, I just did what I had to do. Now, here's the fifth eye problem that Saul has. You know what it is? It's impenitence. Impenitence, which means a refusal to acknowledge his fault. A refusal to repent of a wrong action justifying bad behavior instead of repenting of it, excusing it because of the situation. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. 
You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now would the Lord have established your kingdom upon Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be captain over his people, because you have not kept that which the Lord commanded you. There's not going to be excuse or pardon in this situation. So Now, isn't this amazing? Here's the consequences. You broke his command, and therefore you missed the opportunity of a lifetime, and you've lost your position. Now, is it just me or does it seem harsh? I mean, you look at the God of a thousand chances, right? I mean, you look at Peter. Peter denied Jesus. And Jesus didn't say, Peter, you know, you could have been the Pope, the rock, the apostle that ushered in the keys. With the, but now I'm going to give it to John. How about that? You should have you held your grace. Peter was given multiple chances. You look at Abraham and how many times he failed and things that he did, the, the lie that he told and the reproach that he brought upon God. And God didn't say, Abraham, I would have blessed you in blessing. I would have blessed you, but you blew it. And now I'm going to call Lot and choosing someone else. You think of David and the sin of David. And in some ways, it was so much more egregious. I mean, you look at David's adultery and his murder and the thing that he did with Bathsheba. And then, I mean, Saul offered an offering. He burned a, a, a burnt offering, you know. And, and, and why, why is God being so, why is he so done with Saul right now, even though it seems like it's not really that big of a deal? Here's why. It's because of the condition of Saul's heart. It's because he's impenitent. It's because rather than humbling himself and saying, you know what, I was scared and I don't know what I'm doing. And all of a sudden I'm wearing this crown in my head and I feel like I'm wearing a suit, though I'm a little kid. And this is way too big for me. And I don't know what I'm doing. And I need a whole lot of help. And I screwed up. He said, no, no, I, I'm the king. Look, king, I can do what I want. I can burn what I want. I'm the king. Samuel said, you are nothing. God is the king. And God will do what God wants to do. And you have intruded into something you have no business being in. Your heart is hardened. You have become lifted up in pride. And you will no longer continue in your kingdom. That's why he has this, because he's impenitent. And he'll never find out what God would have done. Now, verse 15, Samuel leaves. Saul is worse off than he was before. It says that Samuel arose and he got him up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people that were with him, about 600 men. Isn't it amazing that Saul, in all of his ability, all of his authority, all of his royalty, he went from 330,000 down to 3,000, he's got 600 left. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people that were present with him abode in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines and Captain Michmash. And the spoilers came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned the way that leads to Oprah, to the land of Shual. And another company turned the way of Betharan. And another company turned to the way of the border that looks to the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no smith, no blacksmith, found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. So the gun control laws were tight. They couldn't have weapons. And all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share and his coulter and his axe and his mattock. Yet they had a file for the mattocks and for the coulters and for the forks and the axes. And to sharpen the goad, you, you know, you could use, if you have a, a file, you can sharpen a sword, but you can't stab someone with it. So it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan. But with Saul and with Jonathan, his son, was there found. They could have guns. No one else could have guns. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the passage of Michmash. Okay, all you get at the end of the chapter is just chaos. You got 600 Israelites with their tails tucked, hiding, afraid, and stuck and you have a vast army, as numerable as the sand of the seashore, of Philistines spreading out into three companies of spoilers, moving into positions to just take over the entire land. And Saul is left without any instruction, not knowing what to do. And the people are completely unarmed and completely in disarray. He has led the nation in all of his brilliance. In the brilliance of his plan, he has led the nation into being stuck, being scared, 
and being lost. That's the good. Now, that sets the stage for the chapter that is to come, okay, when, when, uh, um, when Jonathan is about to do something absolutely amazing, and God is going to keep moving his kingdom forward. But listen, Saul should have humbled himself. Okay, that's all he needed to do, was just humble himself. And sometimes you have to step back, and you have to be honest with yourself, You have to look at your life and you have to say, okay, what have I done here? Look what I created. You have two choices. You could say, no, I'm going to keep going. I'm good. This is fine. I'm in control. Honey, I don't need to ask directions. We're going and it's going to work out. It's fine. I know where we are. Or you can look around and know you're driving over cactuses and you're hitting wolves and the kids are hungry and someone just threw up and you just made a mess of things in this family. What are you doing? Sometimes you have to stop and you have to take a look at things from a distance and you say, where did I screw this up? And you have to be honest with yourself and that applies to every area of your life. Is this really the way things should be? And if not, where is it my fault. How can I humble myself in this situation and make things right? And I believe that even from this point, if Saul genuinely just humbled himself, Samuel would have returned to Saul and helped him, but he became lifted up in pride. Listen, without God, it took Saul less than two years to completely ruin the opportunity of a lifetime. He was given the privilege of being the king of Israel, but because he wanted to do it his way, he ruined it completely and lost it. Listen, there is a way to prevent eye problems because every single one of us can have eye problems. And every one of us does have eye problems, okay? There are times when every single one of us feel insecure. I have to be a dad, but I don't know how to be a dad. I have to be a leader, but I don't know how to lead. I have to come up with a solution, but I don't understand the system. I'm starting from behind where I'm supposed to be at this point. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. That's incompetence. I'm sorry, that's insecurity, and that's common. The solution to it is faith. It's to believe that, God, you put me in this position. I didn't put myself here. And so, therefore, I'm trusting you to raise up around me those that can help me in the situation that I'm in and bring me through it. And I don't need to be insecure that someone is going to come and remove me from my position if, God, you're the one that put me in it. My security stands in my calling, not in my ability. It's faith. The cure for incompetence is trust. It's trusting that God will supplement my insufficiency, that where I lack, he doesn't. The cure for impatience is hope. It's that trusting that God has a plan, even though I can't see how it's working out right now, he does. And he's taking into consideration all kinds of things that I don't understand, and he's going to work it out. The cure for intrusion, moving into something I belong not in, is sobriety and teachability. It's to listen and understand that I don't know everything. And the solution to impenitence is humility. It's to realize that, yes, we screw up, but what do we do with those screw-ups? Do we cover them up and plow forward? Or do we own them and repent of them and say, I need to set this right? And you know, Jesus is the the most amazing example of this. I mean, Jesus just nailed this. He's the ultimate example. He was completely secure. He said to his disciples, you guys go, give give bread to them. Go do it. You guys feed them, feed them. You could do it. I don't need to be the one. You do it. Jesus was able to do it. That Jesus was able to say, no, I'm not going to go to Jerusalem right now, even though this would politically be a very wise time for me to go. Or I'm not going to stay in this region of Galilee, even though there's crowds. I'm going to go somewhere else. I don't need that affirmation. I know who I am. I know what I'm called to do. I'm secure in that. Jesus, who wasn't incompetent, modeled for us dependence on the Father. What do I do today? Father, what am I supposed to do? Jesus, who wasn't impatient, Lazarus has been dead for four days. But I trust that even though he's been dead, if God wants to raise him to life, that God will bring a resurrection. 
Jesus never intrudes into something he doesn't belong in. But he appeals to the Father and says, Father, I don't want this for my life, but if it's your will that I drink this cup, then I'm going to drink this will, even though I have the authority not to, because I have the freedom to choose for myself. But I'm not going to intrude into something that's outside of your will for my life. Eye problems are common. But God doesn't mean that we should fall into them. If we believe, if we trust, if we hope, if we endure, then there's a long game. Our whole life, our whole life is like the drawing back of an arrow, just pulling it back as far. And when you die, you release it. And everything that your life was intended to do begins at the point that you pass away. That's longevity. That's the long game. So many draw halfway and they let go. The arrow isn't full. It's not done but it's not too late. The worst of the eye problems is impenitence because you can have fallen or you can succumb to every one of those things. But if you are willing to humble yourself and say, God, I blew it or I'm blowing it or have lost trust in you, you can right now stand before a father in heaven and say, father, forgive me. Father, move me in the right way. Father, forgive me for taking my plan and my will into my own life. Lord, you do your will in my life. Lord, we just do that now as we have heard and we've seen what's happened to this man who lost what could have been such a great potential life and legacy. And Lord, we ask tonight as we look at our lives through the lens of this text that you would help us, Lord, where we have eye problems. That you would increase our ability to see you, to believe you, to trust you, to surrender our will in faith that what you want for our lives is better than what we want for our lives and to look to Jesus as our ultimate example. So move in our midst here tonight, Lord, and help us where we're weak. We appeal to your mercy and we thank you for your sovereignty and your care for us and your love. So hear our prayer now, oh God, and move us in the direction we should go closer to Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, Leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.